You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. I want to talk to you about the brevity of life. And it's going to be taken directly out of Psalm 90, verse 12, but I'm also going to include uh, a couple other references. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, and then we'll also read a couple verses uh, out of James 4, verses 13 and 14. Easiest thing for you to do will be to follow along the screen. But I want us to consider what these um, passages have to say to us in unison. Let's look at Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. And then in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2, Solomon writes, You learn more at a funeral than at a feast. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take it to heart. And then finally in James 4, verse 13 and 15, Look here, you who say today or tomorrow, We are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. I want to talk to you this evening about the subject of death. But not just death in general. I'm not... I'm not focusing on death just as a concept or even the death of a loved one. How do you respond when a loved one passes? I want to talk tonight about your own death. And maybe you're here tonight thinking, you know what, Ryan, I would rather us not focus on that. Which is very characteristic of us as modern people. Is that we tend to, more than any other generation in history, we tend to avoid the subject of death. And it's something that's very peculiar to us. And it's a, it's a modern anomaly, but it's not endorsed in Scripture, that kind of mindset. There's no, in other words, there's nothing in the Bible, there's no place in the Bible where it will say anything like, hey, when it comes to the topic of death, just try not to think about it. Just try to put it out of your mind and pretend like it's not going to happen to you. The Bible actually refers to that as foolishness. So I want to spend some time with you considering our own death. If nothing else, I want to remind you again tonight, there will come a point you will lay down, take your last breath, and you will die. Now, yes, there are those who will live unto the return of Christ. And maybe that's what you're holding out hope for. Just like every generation of saints for the last 2,000 years. But who knows? Maybe that'll work out for you. But perhaps, I think possibly, you and I need to give some thought to the, to the eventuality that every one of us, we will one day encounter our own mortality. And there will come a moment in our life when life as we know it right now will cease to exist. In Rome, there's a very unique, very strange place called the Capuchin Crypt. And it's where over 4,000 monks are buried. 
most of them having lived over 400 years ago, back in the 17th century. And they're all there, and you can go. It's a real place you can go and visit. It's not a cheap, like, touristy kind of place, Ripley's Believe It or Not, or anything like that. It's nothing like that at all. It's a very somber place of prayerful reflection. But you can go, and you'll see all of these skeleton monks laying around. You, you'll, see, you'll see their little monk hoods pulled over their skeleton heads, and you'll see their monk robes, their, their skeleton hands poking out of their robes in a prayerful posture, and they're all laying there for you to see. And there's a sign that hangs in the crypt, and it's a sign that's written in, in multiple languages, in, in, in Italian and German and French and Spanish and English and Chinese and all of these different languages. Because you see, these monks have something they want to say to you. These monks want to talk to you. They want to show you as a modern person something about the reality of death, perhaps in a way that you've never seen it before. You know, we see death in movies all the time, but we don't often see it in our actual lives. But this is not a movie, and these are not special effects. These are real human beings who have lived out their lives, and now they're buried and have been, many of them, for over 400 years, and they've got a message for you to contemplate. And here's what the sign says. It says, what you are now, we once were. What we are now, you shall be. Isn't that interesting? I think there's a lot of wisdom in reflecting on that truth. Reflecting on the reality of our mortality. That's why Solomon said it's better to it's better to attend a funeral than a feast. Have you ever like had this experience in your life where maybe you're at a cemetery, you're visiting the grave of a loved one, but along the way you find yourself strolling throughout the cemetery, just reading the names, reading the tombstones. I've done this a bit here in Los Angeles. I've gone to different cemeteries just to kind of find famous graves and typically don't tell anybody about it. I don't want them to think I'm weird or whatever, but, but it's a very interesting experience. Have you ever done that, where you're strolling through a cemetery, you're looking at these tombstones, you read the names, you can read the year they were born, the date they were born, the date that they died, and you start doing the arithmetic in your head, and you just get to thinking about it. Here, here's a guy who, who only lived to be like 46 years old, very young, and then you see another one. Here's a guy that lived 102 years old. Wow, what a full life. And then you see maybe a tiny little tombstone. And you know it was an infant. Maybe he lived only a few weeks, a few months. But you just start contemplating these people. And you start wondering, what were their lives like? What, what were their hopes and dreams? What were their accomplishments? What might be said of their lives? If, if you were to sum up each of these person's life in one sentence, what might it be? I think there's wisdom from time to time contemplating these kinds of thoughts. Certain, certainly Solomon thought so. Here's something else I think is worth meditating on and thinking about. I think if you were to ask the average modern person today, how would you prefer to die? When it's your time to go, how would you like to go? I think in general, 
most modern people would say, I would like to die quickly, painlessly, preferably in my sleep. That's how I want to go. When I, I would like to fall asleep without having any knowledge of what's going to happen and in my sleep just painlessly go without me knowing. How many of you would agree that most modern people, that's probably how they prefer to go? Almost like every hand's raised. Everybody agrees. But what I want you to know is that, again, that's very peculiar to us as modern people. It's a modern anomaly that is not true of the overwhelming majority of people throughout history. In fact, there are prayers, I, I can show them to you, there are prayers that have been prayed by Christians for centuries, and they would pray that they would be spared from just that kind of fate. They thought it would be a terrible thing to die without warning, to just simply pass away in your sleep without any expectation of it. So they would actually pray prayers that that wouldn't happen to them. They wanted to be able to approach their own death with some level of cognizance and awareness that it was approaching. And so it's very interesting to me that 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 has shifted somewhat here in our modern society. Why is that? Well, I I think generally speaking, I think it's because people today tend to be more afraid of pain than they are of God. See, the ancient person tended to be much more aware and much more reverent when it came to respect for the divine. And so they would say, you know what? Before I meet my maker, I want to make sure I'm prepared. Before I encounter God, I want to make sure I'm prepared for that encounter. And they also wanted the opportunity to share some final words, some final thoughts with their loved ones, with their family and their friends. In other words, you could say it like this. They wanted what we used to call a deathbed experience. Which again, it's very interesting that that has shifted, that has changed, that, that today we don't really crave and want a deathbed experience. We simply want to just fall asleep and pass. Again, I think that it, there's something about this idea that as modern people, we tend to fear pain more than we fear God. But I also think that advances in modern medical technology has changed our attitudes about some things. For example, our attitude towards the elderly, and particularly the dying, has become profane. It's become quite secular, that we simply don't want to be around them. We don't want to deal with them. We don't want to have to encounter them. So what if you combine advances in modern medical technology with our general attitude towards the elderly, and particularly the dying? What happens is what, what's, we've taken away this practice of family and friends gathering around the deathbed of a loved one. That doesn't happen as often as it used to. That used to be a very common occurrence. Like if I were standing here preaching this sermon even just a hundred years ago, most people who would, have, who would have been here listening to this sermon will have at some point in their lives, they will have had that experience of being present and witnessing the passing of one of their loved ones. And yet you will meet many modern people today who have never had that experience. And I think it makes us poorer as a society, a little less human. In fact, throughout human history, one of the things considered to be avoided was to die alone. That's what they never wanted to have happen, was to die alone. 
They wanted their children, they wanted their friends and their family to gather around them at bedside. I think about, for example, in Genesis 49, when Jacob comes to the end of his life, it's the end of a huge era, the era of the patriarchs, the era of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a huge moment. And Jacob's lying on his bed and his 12 sons have gathered around him. And in his final moments, he takes time to bless each one of his sons. He prophesies and prays over each one of them. And then it just simply says this, he breathed his last and he was gathered to his father's. We don't have that kind of image of death anymore in our culture. It's become much more of a clinical phenomenon, a medical procedure. That's how we've learned to see it. But why would we want to do this? And this is going to take me where I really want to go today. In other words, why would we want to gather around the deathbed of a loved one? Why would we even want that experience? It's because the dying often have a perspective on life that has been keenly stripped of illusion. You understand, like, when we are in the middle decades of our life, in our 30s, 40s, 50s, it's very easy for us to get pushed and pulled by the cultural values in our environment, in our context, and we start to slip into a certain way of thinking, particularly in our American capitalistic dog-eat-dog, winner-take-all competitive game that we call the American dream. It's very easy for us to get tricked into assuming here's what really matters, here's what's really important. But when a person is encroaching upon death and they know that death is near, they're in their final moments, their final days, their final weeks, oftentimes these folks gain a very sharpened clarity on what truly matters in life so that those who gather around this uh, bedside of this loved one can glean something of their wisdom. In just a few weeks, our nation will mark the 22nd anniversary of September 11th, 2001. Certainly the most defining event of my lifetime and, and that of many of you here. And if you were around then, you'd be able to tell me exactly where you were on that morning. It was a morning unlike any other, a lot of very unique things about that day, September 11th, but here's one of them. I want you to consider how on that morning, on the morning of September 11th, 2001, hundreds of people were trapped near the top of those twin towers, and at some point, they came to the realization that death was imminent. There came a point that morning where hundreds of people said to themselves, I'm trapped in this building. There is no way out. Help is not coming. And death is imminent. And they had a cell phone in their hand. And they still had the ability to think clearly. They still had clarity of thought. And they had a point of connection to the outside world, knowing that they're probably not going to get out of this alive, but they still had a means of contacting the outside world. In other words, you could say it like this, they were, they were afforded a virtual deathbed experience. Now, what did they do with those cell phones? Knowing that death was just a few moments away, what did they do with those cell phones? You can read the transcripts. These have been collected. Did they call their broker? 
Who did they call with those cell phones? What, what did they talk about? What did they discuss? Did they call their banker to talk about the bottom line and their stock portfolio? What did they do? They almost all did the same thing. They use that point of connection with the outside world. They use that cell phone as people knowing they were facing imminent death. They used it to call their loved ones. They called husbands and wives. They called sons and daughters. They called mothers and fathers. And they all had one message. They all had one thing they wanted to say. Tell me what it was. I love you. That's what they wanted to say. That's what was most important to them. I mean, these are people coming to the end of their lives and they know it. You're only going to say and do what's most important to you. And they used those cell phones to call their loved ones and they wanted those that they loved to know that they loved them. This should teach us something. It should teach us something about the meaning of life. It seems to me that the witness of the dying is that the meaning of life adds up to love. And when I think about that, I, I just reflect on it, I realize that is theologically sound. That if our lives are the creation of a being whose very essence is love, then it makes sense to me that the meaning of life, the whole point of life, somehow or another, ultimately adds up to love. So that we as human beings, as we try to grapple with this question, as every human being who's ever lived has, when we try to figure out what's the point of life, why are we here, what's the meaning of existence, and we try to use our tools of theology and philosophy and the experience of our lives to try to come up with some kind of answer to what is the meaning of life, I've just arrived at the conclusion that one way or another, ultimately, the meaning of life adds up to love. In fact, I will say it like this. As you're working on the equation for what is the meaning of life, if your equation doesn't add up to love, you need to go back and recalculate because you've made a mistake somewhere along the way. If you think that the meaning of life adds up to power or wealth or knowledge or pleasure, you've made a terrible miscalculation because the meaning of life adds up to love. This is a fundamental revelation of Scripture, but it's also the witness of the dying. That as they depart the land of the living, the dying talk about love. I mentioned a moment ago how advances in modern medical technology have contributed to our changing of attitude towards the elderly and particularly the dying and how that's very unfortunate. But there's also something good about what modern medical technology has been able to produce in us. In fact, many, 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 many things. But there's one thing in particular I, wanna, I want us to reflect on in a moment, and that is that advances in modern medical technology have made it possible for the phenomenon of the near-death experience to be a much more common experience in our day and age, which up until recently, it would have been a very, very rare occurrence. But because of the advances of modern medical technology, 
it's more and more common that we hear of these kinds of experiences where a person is on the very brink of death or they could in fact uh, be in a situation where you would say this person is clinically dead and yet because of modern medical technology, they're able to be somehow resuscitated back to life. And I've watched, you know, these documentaries where they'll interview these people who have experienced these near-death encounters or, or people who you could even just say, this person was clinically dead and they're resuscitated. And almost all of them come back to this life with a completely different set of values. They come out of that experience profoundly changed. You could say it like this, most of them are resuscitated back to life with a, a new set of values that are in keeping with the supremacy of love. And it's very common to hear about, for example, the highly successful businessman who has a near-death experience and when he's resuscitated, when he comes back to life and, and begins life anew, he's no longer interested in his business anymore. He wants to do something totally different with his life. He wants to spend more time with his kids. He wants to spend more time with his family. He wants to be more engaged in charitable causes. He wants to do whatever he can to make the world a better place, motivated out of love, because he's had this encounter that has somehow communicated to him that the meaning of life adds up to love. Solomon put this in one of his poems. He said, love is stronger than death. It's greater than the grave. But listen to me, only love, only love is stronger than death. That's why those people trapped in those twin towers, that's why they didn't get out their cell phones and call their broker. Because somehow or another, they knew intuitively, my stock portfolio is not stronger than death. Only love is stronger than death. Power is not stronger than death. Wealth is not stronger than death. Knowledge is not stronger than death. Fame is not stronger than death. Pleasure is not stronger than death. Only love is. And this lies at the very heart of our salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. In what fashion did he give his son? He gave him to join us in death. The psalmist, hundreds of years earlier, records God saying this to humanity. God says, though you make your bed in Sheol, I'm there. In other words, God loves humanity so much that he will not allow death to sever the cord of love. So God in Christ joins us in death, joins us in Sheol, joins us in the grave so that he might raise us up out of it. Think about the, the witness that comes from our greatest apostles. You know, if I were to ask everybody here, what are the, who are the greatest apostles? Tell me the, the Mount Rushmore of apostles. Everybody's answers would be unanimous. Paul, Peter, James, John. That's it. Our greatest apostles, Paul, Peter, James, and John. So let's consider what they say about this. Paul, his, probably his most famous piece of writing is 1 Corinthians 13, what we always call the love chapter. And you always hear 1 Corinthians 13 quoted, at least in part, you hear it quoted at weddings because it's all about love. And it's very appropriate to read from 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding. It's very appropriate. 
But I've come to believe that because of the nature of the poem and some of the things Paul is emphasizing, it actually might be more appropriate to read it at a funeral. Think about how he ends that poem. The Apostle Paul says this, Love believes all things. Love bears all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. So now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The the Apostle Paul talks about how knowledge will pass away, prophecies will pass away, miracles will pass away. But he says love will never pass away. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love is stronger than the grave, greater than death. What does Peter say? Peter says, above all, love one another. Now, come on, this is the guy who Jesus changes his name to Peter, meaning Rocky, and says, on this rock, on his witness, I will build my church. And what does he say? Above all, love one another. What does James say? James says, the royal Law is love. Love is the royal law. And then what does John say? John excels them all. He says God is love. Twice. Above all, love one another. The greatest of all is love. Love is the royal law. God is love. That's the witness of our greatest apostles. They're trying to tell us that as you work on the equation for the meaning of life and what your life should be all about, that it should add up to love. That's the witness of the apostles. It's the witness of Scripture, and it's the witness of dying. It's also the witness of Christ. The rich young ruler approaches Jesus and asks him, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want to participate in the age to come. So what must I do to participate in the age to come? I want to I share in that life. I want to be included in that. I want to participate in that. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus does not give the standard evangelical answer, which is pray this prayer with me. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying, as you are set on that trajectory, where increasingly by the Spirit's grace, you are learning to live in love for your Creator and love for your fellow human beings. That kind of life, Jesus is telling him, that's the life that will find continuation in the age to come. When you are living that way of life, when you are living in that direction, when you're living in that trajectory, that's the kind of life that will find continuation even beyond your grave. Consider these things. If you ever gather around the bedside of a dying man, you'll never hear him say, well, you know, I wish I spent more time at the office. I wish I had worked more hours. I wish I'd have found a way to make more money. The regret usually comes in this form. I wish I had spent more time with my kids. I wish I had spent more time with my family. I wish I had spent more time doing those things that are directly connected to expressions of love. And so the witness of the scriptures, the witness of the apostles, and the witness of the dying is that the meaning of life adds up to love and those who are wise can see it and will see it before they're on their deathbed 
Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.